1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Military History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jessica Maloney, and with us today is author and historian Donald Meller, who will be talking with us about his new book, Vicksburg, Grant's Campaign that Broke the Confederacy, which was published in October of 2019. Donald, welcome to the show, and thank you for joining us today.
0: Pleasure to be here.
1: So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about your background, where you're from, where did you attend school, what drew you to the study of history?
0: Yeah. Um, I um, I was born in Pennsylvania. It's on the top of the word. It's in, uh, in northeastern Pennsylvania, coal and industrial town, steel town. Um, grew up in a working class neighborhood. Um, wasn't too interested in going to college. Eventually, um, sports drew me there and went to a small college in western Pennsylvania called St. Vincent College. Great school. Changed my life. Um, Went on to grad school and um, did some work at Yale, and uh, you know graduated from University of Maryland with a Ph.D. And then went into teaching after a brief stint at the Washington Post. And um, I've been involved in academic teaching at a number of institutions: Cornell and Penn, and and uh, now I'm at Lafayette College, and I've been here for a while, and I just retired um, uh, last year. Oh, that's- and uh, too much other work: films and uh, and books, and it was piling up, and uh, the, um, the teaching was kind of, you know, not getting in the way, but it was a little too much. Sure. So that's where I am now. I'm, I'm, you know, I just finished uh, the book you mentioned. It's my 10th book. I should say this. I'm not um, trained as a military historian. Never took a military district course in college or graduate school. Um, I became interested in it um, late in life, um, not till... Um, the 10 books I've done, I didn't do a military history until the sixth book. And that was a big book on World War II. And then I did a book on <clears throat> two aspects of World War II, one called D-Days in the Pacific, which was about the gigantic and savage Pacific War. And um, we did some films on that with um, uh, PBS. so-called 10-part show called the Pacific. And then I did a book on the uh, bomber war over Germany called um, Masters of the Air. And Apple TV is now doing that. Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg are the producers. Um, we originally started with HBO and now we moved it over to Apple. And we should start producing, we will start producing uh, this year. And we're hiring actors and whatnot. And it's going to be eight to 10 hours. Um, a dramatic series, not a documentary. And I'm, I'm also working on a couple documentaries right now. Yes. So that's about it. You know, I divide my time between most of my time is devoted strictly cheerleader to writing. Get up every day, hit the desk, write um, through, and then either, you know, golf, play tennis, take a swim, and uh, clear the head and do some light reading. I read a lot of novels in the evening and um, go at it again the next day. Relentless like Grant's March to Vicksburg, <laughs> you know, it doesn't stop. Yeah. I love, it. I love <clears> it.
1: <throat> it. Sounds like you got some exciting stuff ahead of you there.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm doing the National Geographic show on Chicago and uh we just did a documentary that's coming out. Um just came out with Smithsonian on the uh the Memphis Bell famous plane that was a Uh, In my next book, which is going to be about the end of the war and Grant and the partnership between Lincoln and Grant that brought the war to a close. Um, So it deals with about 10 months of the war, the last 10 months of the war. Great. uh, Focusing on the president and the commander in chief. It it was a partnership unlike any in American military history, very close. And uh, so um, I I just moved right on.
1: Right. (laughs) So, uh, what would you say interested you about, to write a book about Grant and Vicksburg?
0: Well, you know, I I again didn't come very did become interested in, in the Civil War until the nineties, nineteen nineties, and I I think what provoked me uh, was Ken Burns' documentary, a fantastic documentary he did on on the war, and but I was curious um, uh, why he dealt uh, so with, um, with Vicksburg, which even in my elementary understanding was a gigantic and an immensely important battle. Um, I've done some work with Ken and I, 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 asked him and he said, well, you need images to carry a, a documentary film. And, and he wasn't finding the kind of images you could find for say, Gettysburg. So I started reading on Vicks, uh, went down there and, um, you know, um, I thought the battle, uh, deserved a, um, a new look There had been pushed on Vicksburg and, uh, I wanted to do a different kind of book.
1: Right. <clears throat> so you start the book, um, at Cairo. Can you talk a little bit more about why you started there?
0: Well, that goes to the last question, actually. I, I wanted to write, I I'll call it just a new kind of military history. That is, I guess you could call it a holistic approach. Um, I don't want to do histories, and, and all my World War II books are like this as well, that just deal bullet by bullet uh, with the conflict, uh, sheerly dealing with combat, today. I try to cast the war in a wider frame. I deal with, um, for example, at Vicksburg. I start with Cairo. And uh, why start there? That's in 1861. Well, you see the emergence of Grant there. He, he takes over this godforsaken little community and in southern Illinois at the confluence of the Ohio River and the Mississippi and and turns it into a staging area for a gigantic military operation that lasted three years, and that is to conquer the entire Mississippi Valley, not just Vicksburg. And so I had to widen my focus. I, I wanted to deal with um, the evolution of Grant as a leader. He certainly wasn't capable of taking Vicksburg in 1860. But, I mean, he just re-entered military service. Um, he had been drummed out of the service years before for drinking on duty. Um, he was a failure in just about everything he tried after that. And he was shelving hardware you know, um, and uh, leather goods at his father's uh, store in a little town in Western Illinois called Galena. And the war comes in. He has a local sponsor who puts him up for generalship, and he reads in the paper that he's appointed a brigadier general. <coughs> and um, so, you know, I mean, Grant, Grant, you see, at Cairo is is an evolving thing, and um, he's he's not the commander that's capable yet of taking a place like Vicksburg. Nor is Vicksburg the most important spot. In the Mississippi Valley at that point. Um, the South built a number. See, when the war starts, I mean, this becomes you know, below Cairo, the Mississippi becomes a rebel river. Uh, it's controlled by the Confederacy, and they surely expected that the Union would try to reconquer it. You know, it was inevitable they tried. And they built a series of forts um, along the river and just inland to prevent the Yankees from penetrating. this forts extended all the way down to New Orleans. And, and Grant begins that process of reconquest, and as he knocks off one place after another and finally gets to Memphis, uh, then Vicksburg pops up because at that point in eight, late 1862, December 1862, um, New Orleans has already been captured um, by naval forces that, uh, independent of Grant, come up through the Gulf of Mexico and in what was supposed to be a surprise attack. Um, up those very difficult straits um, below New Orleans and captured the city without firing a shot. The Navy proceeded upriver, took uh, Natchez, took uh, Baton Rouge, again, without much resistance at, at all. And But Vicksburg refuses to surrender. And so in late 1862, back to that, it still hasn't surrendered. And it's a rebel river from Vicksburg all the way down to near... Baton Rouge, and um, so the Yankees can't use it for military operations, and farmers from the Midwest can't ship their products, which they've done for years, down the Mississippi. And so this causes a lot of political agitation in the Midwest. Lincoln's losing votes out there. Um, He has to open the river for that reason. He has to open up for military reasons. A lot of people thought the war was going to be won, not in the East, at places like Antietam and Gettysburg, but it would be won in the West. So, um, I shift the focus. In other words, in the war, to or, or Burns, for example, in his film, it's predominantly on the Eastern theater. And, uh, and I thought the Western theater and the West is where really the war was won, uh, where the Confederacy was broke, broken. Um, there's still two more years of five Vicksburg surrenders and get a little ahead in here, but Vicksburg surrenders on July 4th, 1863. It's the same day that um, the Union armies at Gettysburg um, hold off Lee and Lee got to retreat to Virginia. So Gettysburg and Vicksburg are two signal victories a turning point in the war. Maybe we can talk a little bit later about why Vicksburg becomes that turning point so early in the war. Right. <clears throat> That's where it starts. It starts at Cairo. on this modest little community uh, that becomes the largest military station in the West. Um, All the gunboats, ironclad gunboats, were first developed in that area uh, in little towns, you know, to the east and west of Cairo. Navy has its, what's called the Brownwater Navy, the River Navy, which plays a huge part in my book, um, because Grant was a river warrior. That's how he mostly moved his troops by water. And he couldn't have taken Vicksburg, for example, without the help of the Navy. Man by the name of David Dixon Porter, who is a rear admiral, not a rear admiral, admiral. And um, so um, that's that's kind of where everything begins. And uh, we were taken back, uh, Confederate prisoners were taken back to Cairo. Uh, there were immense hospitals there. Um, so it's a great centering point for understanding the war in the West.
1: Right. Okay. So then the book turns back to, to Grant and his early years and his career before the war and his struggles with alcohol. How do yeah. you, I, I really enjoyed the way that you explained his early years. How do you think those, the struggles that he had affected his actions in the war?
0: Well, that's a great question. And um, it's, it's, it's a real live issue in Grant historiography. A lot of historians have gone at this. And um, I think I have some new things to say. I and mean, it's clear to me that, um, that Grant, from a very early age, Beginning with his service in the 1840s in in Mexico, the Mexican War, had a drinking problem. And he drank sporadically. He wasn't a continuous drink. Uh, There's no question he was an alcoholic. Uh, He he couldn't uh, stay away from it. It was a difficult struggle. He did for long periods of time. I mean, One of the great apples of the book is Grant's personal battle with the bottle. And... um, his problem was he um, he couldn't handle his booze. Um, two or three drinks would set him off sometimes crazily, and uh, so uh, and and generally when he he doesn't drink when the fighting's going on. He doesn't drink on the battlefield. He, there's no evidence that he drank when you know in his family around, especially when his wife was around. Um, but you no. Know, there's a lot of drinking going on in the Civil War. There's, there's books still to be written about drinking in the Civil War and, and he you was know, especially uh, almost epidemic proportions, uh, at, uh, at, at Cairo. And, uh, and Grant parked up and he drank right throughout the war. Again, uh, he would drink on a Tuesday and then he wouldn't drink for three weeks. Uh, and, 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 and this is how it went and, um, and, uh, and for long periods of his life after the war he he licked the problem and uh always, I think.
1: and why do you think other um treatments of Grant might have avoided talking about his drinking problem?
0: Oh you know that's a crazy thing. I think there's almost um, a, a kind of a uh, you know a stereopietistic view of Grant you know that you you read this liquor thing into the biography. I mean, if you introduced it, you know, it diminishes Grant. I think, it, you know, it enhances Grant. He becomes more complex. He becomes real. You know, uh, he's somebody who can emphasize, but he has a problem and he's trying to lick it. And uh, for long periods of time, he does just that. And uh, I think it humanizes Grant. Um, and other um, scholars don't just, Want to run away from it. There was one episode, for example, during the Battle of Vicksburg, um, where he was, um, his army was being threatened. And um, I won't go into all the specifics, but we can come back to that. Uh, it was in a threat- threatened situation. Uh, he's uh, besieging Vicksburg, but there's another army behind him in a town called Jackson, about 40 miles away. And it's commanded by a general that Grant respected, Joseph Johnson and uh, who would fight Sherman at the end of the war in the last battles of, of Eastern Theater. And Grant uh, felt that Johnson was about to move on his rear. He's, he's facing Pittsburgh and Johnson, you know, on his back. And so he went out to check out the situation out near where Johnson was supposed to be stationed on a river called the Yazoo River. <clears throat> and that he drank, but, well, he went on a bender. On the uh, on the boat and uh, the um, and had to he put to bed uh, woke up the next morning and uh, he thought he was in a town called Satarsha which is where he was headed but the boat turned around and um, brought him back to where he started there were witnesses on the boat you know one a, a close associate of Grant named Charles Dana who changed the story a couple of times you know I And mean, first he said Grant got roaring drunk and then he you know, he trimmed that a little bit, and uh, there was a reporter there named Ted Wallinger, and he has a very vivid account of grand freaking escapade, which was crazy. He got a horse, he rode to the union camps, he fell off the horse, uh, had to take take it back in, in, in what was called an ambulance, and wagon, um, back to his encampment, etc. For years, nobody believed it, but I, I found some pretty compelling evidence that uh, that supports catalogs account but um and it also you know is disruptive you know in a lot of ways Uh, you know it it contradicts a lot of the scholarship that said grant never drank when he was in an imperiled situation now he doesn't drink on the battlefield but Vicksburg. this is probably the most anxious grant had been in the whole campaign he's really worried about johnson so his army was in peril and, and he did drink when he shouldn't have been drinking and um, so I think, you know, probably a lot of historians don't want to believe cadwallader Waller, but I find him a pretty compelling um, uh, witness. As do some Grant biographers, like William McFeely, who won a Pulitzer Prize for a book on Grant. A very good biography. I think McFeely makes an interesting comment that, you know, there's too much evidence um, to discount this. Much too much evidence.
1: Definitely seems like an underexplored area of Grant's life.
0: Yeah, and you find things like people said Cat Walter wasn't even on the boat. And what I found, and you know, at the Chicago Public Library, is I found, you know, Cat Walter worked for a Chicago newspaper. I found a dispatch that was filed, a newspaper story that was filed from Satarsha on the very day that that boat was in Satarsha. Now, who else? (laughs) <laughs> would have been a Chicago reporter in Satarsha except Ken Waller. He's there. There's no question about it. So, that at least is is, is one of the indisputable facts. Uh, the other stuff is up to is, is up grabs. There's a lot of controversy about it.
1: Right. So the action in the book then moves to Fort Donaldson. What do you think was the most important factor in the success
0: there? Well, you know, here Grant is, I mean, he moves out from Cairo and he's going to use the Cumberland and Tennessee rivers, um, which run north uh, and dump out into the Ohio. And the Confederates have built forts along the Cumberland and Tennessee: Fort Henry and Donaldson. And working with the navy, um, and with naval gunboats, um, he takes rather easily Fort Henry and then moves through the woods to a place called Fort Donaldson and. Uh, and uh, it's, uh, it's a tough winter fight. Um, Grant makes a big mistake there. He he leaves the battlefield. Uh, he had to leave the battlefield. The, the naval commander at the time was had, 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 was injured and wanted to, he couldn't communicate with Grant by, you know, any other way, but having Grant come to him, and he was going to inform Grant that he's pulling his gunboats out. And so Grant went to see him. But he didn't leave anybody in charge of his army, and the Confederates broke out of Fort Donelson, which the Yankees were besieging, and almost overran the uh, the Union army and escaped. And Grant returns to the battlefield while this chaos is going on, and regroups... Uh He's very good, Grant, uh, you know, at making... He's impetuous, impetuous, often, but he makes quick decisions, and he's very decisive on the battlefield, and he was there at Donaldson. And he turns this ugly situation around within an hour and a half. And the momentum swings to the Union side, and they almost take the fort that night, and they took a surrender the next morning. So he performed brilliantly on the battlefield, but he did make mistakes, and he would continue to make mistakes in these, in these early battles. Um, and... and he, as well as at it, Vicksburg. And again, I think this, this humanizes. I mean, this doesn't, it doesn't diminish what he's doing. I mean, with the, with this immense job he's given, you know, conquering huge swaths of southern territory all the way down to Vicksburg, um, a young, he's a young man. And, um, he's going to make, uh, he's going to make a lot of mistakes. He'd only been a quartermaster in, in, in Mexico. He saw a little combat. But he had no real command experience before that. It's amazing. I mean, be, be consider a guy, what a great character for a book. I mean, if you wrote a novel and, and, and you created this guy, who, who the hell would believe it? You know, he's shelving goods in a hardware store, you know, you know a washed up army veteran in 1861. And in and, and that year, he becomes a Brigadier General. And the next year, Uh, He takes uh, Donaldson, it's unconditional surrender, and um, he becomes the first hero of the war because Donaldson is the first Union victory of the war. You're right to point that out. And then Grant goes down the next year and takes Vicksburg. The next year, after taking Chattanooga, Lincoln calls him back east, and he's put in charge of all Union armies, and he goes to battle with R.E. Lee, and the next year he takes Lee's surrender at Appomattox. Four years later, he's president of the United States. So in eight years, he moves from a a hardware store to the White House. I mean, (laughs) it's
1: definitely a meteoric rise.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's it's meteoric. It's pretty
1: amazing. It's It's a great character to wrap a book around. That leads me to my next question. The next part of the book, you talk about Shiloh and how both Grant and Sherman made a number of errors, but the Union still managed to get a victory there.
0: Yeah, yeah, they go down the Tennessee River. They go down to Shiloh, a uh, Pittsburgh Landing, it was called. It was the steamboat landing. But the Confederates were in a uh, place called Corinth, which is back, right down the road, about twelve miles. And um, there's a gigantic army forming there to reverse what Grant had taken from the Confederates at Donaldson. When he took Baltimore, he took great parts of Kentucky and Tennessee, so the South wants to regain them. They're mobilizing this. Tremendous army there under some of their very best generals. It's an all-star cast. And uh, Grant um, sets up his encampment. um, And that encampment, you know, it's a large army and and over 40,000. And it's vulnerable because Grant doesn't have the troops entrenched, you know, and dig trenches and dig um, what were called earthen forts, you know, you know. Installations that would become more and more prominent as the world wore on. And he's right where the road to Corinth, you know, begins. And uh and he's gonna march down that road to Corinth. He expects to and take it. But the rebels surprised him and Sherman, who was his, you know, right hand man at uh is the first time they fought together at Shiloh, and they get surprised. And they get rolled back almost to the banks of the Tennessee River. And the aim of the Confederates is to drive them back across the Tennessee River. And most of that day, uh, it's it looks like a, a Confederate victory. But Grant sets up defensive line and stubbornly, tenaciously, those are two of his key characteristics. He holds that line and makes a famous comment when Sherman saw him that evening standing against a tree with a bar in his mouth and a lantern in his hand and it's pouring down rain and said, so what are you going to do and he said lick them tomorrow they got reinforcements and he did just that he rallies from that but his reputation suffered uh he was demoted him and uh, uh in army terms arrested for a I mean, he was detained he wasn't permitted to involve himself in military operations and uh again he, he comes back from that and. Uh, is installed as commander of most of the Union armies in Tennessee. And that in November, 1862, after Shiloh, uh, Shiloh was in April, um, he moves on there. And uh, he invades it from the north, from the Tennessee-Mississippi border. Uh, and he tries to follow a rail line down into Mississippi uh, and cut across and take Vicksburg by land from its rear. Vicksburg was most feared for its riverfront fortification, its batteries, its cannons. and um, it was believed to be by this time, but a lot of people thought certainly some Confederates that it was impregnable. So Grant's going to try to take it from the rear and he failed. And uh, he uh, makes a lot of mistakes because he, his, ra- his supply line is a railroad that runs Confederate territory, and Confederate cavalry is led by Nathan Bedford Forrest and a guy by right the name of they cut his supply line. Uh, so he's, he's reached the University Town of Oxford, and uh, he has to turn around and retreat. And but since Sherman is going, you know, his army is with him. He sends Sherman to Memphis, and Sherman goes down the river with 40000
1: actually come across as any great military strategist uh, in this whole situation here. Um, You mentioned before it was really more about his ability to make quick decisions uh, when faced with failure as opposed to him being any kind of brilliant military genius.
0: Yeah, he's he's a master of improvisation. Um, Flexibility is, you know, uh, that got him in a lot of trouble later in the war when he took over by the sluggish army of the Potomac. They had been suffering a lot of defeats some victories in the East, but it was an army that uh, had a very formalized command structure, um, a lot of drill, parade ground stuff, officers dressed in dress uniforms with swords and things like that. Grant had a ragtag army, and, um, you know, uh, they marched into your town, you'd, you'd run up in the attic, you know, <laughs> I mean, and saw these guys. Uh, long hair, they're woodsmen, they're Western farmers. Uh, they're not all detailed, you know. Crisp in, in, in crispy military uniforms. Grant wears a private blouse you know, most of the time. Mud splattered boots. Uh, but the army was together. I mean, they had a sense of cohesion, and, uh, and they believed in their commander. And, uh, and Grant was, you know, Grant's a brilliant writer. I mean, his memoir. And he wrote just before his death. Um, uh, finished it days before his death, and uh, it is one of the great pieces of American literature in the 19th century. And um, but he, during the war, he wrote these tremendously um, clear. Uh, he wrote this kind of Hemingway is diamond hard prose, and you couldn't help but understand what an order meant. Um, where he wanted you to be, at what point in the battle he wanted you to attack. And he wrote these on the fly, you know, often on, you know, from the back of a horse uh, while a campaign's eating, and, uh, and, and they're so clear. And uh, so, you know, he, he's an easy commander to you know to understand. And he expected a lot of his subordinates too, and delegated a lot of responsibility to his commanders. He'd lay out the overall strategy, but you made a great point. He's not a master strategist. He doesn't read the great military treatises of the time at West Point. They were required reading almost. And uh, he couldn't bother with them. He loved to read novels. He loved to ride horses. And he loved to draw and um, do and some watercolors. And uh, and wanted to be a university, for a small college president. And uh, or I should say, that's a little ambitious, but at the time, he's about, you know, Becoming a professor of mathematics at Columbia College. Um, imagine if he had but not um, where would he be um, without Grant in the war? But uh, yeah, it's uh, it's 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 not blueprints. He'll lay out an overall plan and um, and leave the details to the battle. Because as he pointed out, like when he's fighting General Lee in the East, or when he's fighting this guy Pemberton commander Vicksburg, who by the way was from Philadelphia of all places, but uh, when he fights, he says, well, I'm not going to plan a strategy unless I know what they're doing. I'm going to be reacting to their movements, And so it, it, it's going to call for a lot of on the spot thinking and rethinking. And so he doesn't have a set out plan for a battle. And uh, that was his genius, actually. To be in the middle of a battle has a cool perspective to be able to assess where we're weak, where we're strong, um, are we getting beaten back? If we are, how do we turn this around? Uh, the mind's moving all the time. Um, Graham's not a genius, I don't want to use that word, but he has a brilliant military mind. War makes Ulysses Grant. I mean, it you threw him back into a position of high respectability from the car store the generalship of the army. War made him, uh, made him a national hero, made him a president. And that's where it was at its best.
1: Moving on to the next section, this um, is where you talk about the Navy and their struggle on the Mississippi. This section, I think, best illustrates that the fight for Vicksburg wasn't just fought on Grant, on land by Grant and his army. The Navy obviously played a vital role in the victory.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, he cooperates in, in, in eventually taking Vicksburg. Um, from the time he arrives in, in these camps in Louisiana, the really rough winters. Winters are tough, can be very tough in this city. camped in some horrible conditions, swamps just across the river from this, from uh, Vicksburg, they could see Vicksburg. And, uh, but, um, the water's undrinkable on uh, most of it. Um, uh, disease spread through the army and became rampant. every kind of disease from typhoid, uh, to malaria, to dysentery, you name it, they have it. And you know, his, his, his troops are dying like flies. In fact, um, and, and the river is, a high tide at that point, and um it's um it's flooding the camps and there's no place to pitch a tent um, the Yankee soldiers had to uh, almost live the day out on the levees on these high wooden you know um, blocking you know the, these levees that block the overflow of the river and uh when Mary Livermore, a woman from Chicago who worked for a, uh, called, a organization called the Sanitary Society, which delivered medicine and uh, uh, all vegetables, fresh fruit, uh, and letters, and brought these down regularly to Vicksburg. When she was approaching Vicksburg, her first sight of Vicksburg said she said it was coffins, coffins floating in the river. What would happen is the river would break through the levee, and the guys had nowhere to bury their comrades except on the high ground of the levee. So they slept close to the dead there. And when the water broke through, the coffins, and sometimes coffins that graves, the bodies and the coffins were, were thrust into the river. And uh, that's the sight he saw when she arrived there. So it's amazing. Grant recovers from that. But what he has to do is figure out a way to get past vicksburg below vicksburg where there's dry ground um if i can sketch a little geography here if you go north of vicksburg north of the yazoo river there's this gigantic swamp if you will you know called the yazoo delta it's one of the great cotton-growing areas of the south but it's flooded a lot of the year and it has almost no roads and its rivers are almost impassable so you can't. He was told, at least when he got there, that you, you can't go in that delta. You can't take Pittsburgh from the north. You can't take it straight on from Louisiana because you're running right into those batteries. You know, and there's no place to land. The town was located right on the river itself, and the town rises up rather steeply. It's it's a hill town, and the Confederates would have had a huge advantage. Grant would have been it would have been suicidal to hit it that way. The only way you can get at this place is what Grant had tried before to get in behind it. But to do that from Louisiana, you've got to mark an army all the way down to a point south of Vicksburg and cross the river below Vicksburg into Mississippi and attack it from that side. And that's eventually what he did, but he couldn't do it for a long time because that country, South of his camps in Louisiana was flooded. The entire towns were underwater. So he's really in a predicament, and he needs the Navy, as you point out, and to help him out to move his armies. But wherever his armies are moving around Vicksburg <coughs> throughout the entire campaign, until he gets to the Mississippi, it, they're they're moved on on on, on troops and, 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 and with the protection of ironclad. Commanded by, by Admiral Porter, and Grant actually does, with Navy cooperation, do what everybody thought was impossible. Actually, it turned out to be impossible. He went into the Yazoo Delta on three occasions and um, tried to get Vicksburg that way. Um, and he was—I won't go into all the expeditions, but I'll tell you how precarious it was, and it, it set Lincolns you know, Lincoln on edge when he landed. Grant was fooling around in those swamps. Um, he goes up into in these, he didn't have any maps, by the way, in these you know, forested areas that are flooded um, and uh, trees overhang these narrow streams. They create a kind of canopy that cuts out the sunlight. It's very dark and gloomy, all kinds of forest creatures. The Confederates are tracking him as he's going through there. And he's got his best gunboats. Five of them, he needs them to take Vicksburg. And he's got Porter, the guy he really needed, commanding the gunboats. And he's got his number two guy, Sherman, commanding the troops. So he's risking Sherman, Porter, and the gunboats to go on this unbelievably reckless and precarious mission to get in behind Vicksburg. And they get trapped. Um, rebels start cutting trees down in front of the boats and behind the boats. They trap the boats um, deep in the swamp. They attack, and at that point, Porter is miles ahead of Grant, who's coming, of uh, uh, Sherman, who's trying to move through on, on troop ships that can't get through because they try to blast through. The overhanging trees knock off their chimneys, and uh, so they have to march, and they're behind him. And Porter sends a message to a black slave that offers to cooperate. The Sherman said, get here, they're about to attack. He tells his crew, Porter does that we're going to be boarded by these guys. Uh, they're going to come on board. It's going to be hand-to-hand combat, and we're, and we're going to probably lose. We're outnumbered. And in that case, we're going to blow up the boats and, uh, and escape the, into the swamp and see if we can find our way back to Pittsburgh. Well, nobody expects to live to the next day. But it, it's like an old... Hokey Western. I mean, Sherman gets there just in the nick of time on a borrowed horse and rides up to Porter, who has just had three naval officers shot within two feet of him. And, uh, um, this is a Confederate. The Confederates are ready to move and he scatters the Confederate army and they back out of. They back out of the swamps. They can't, they don't have enough room. The, um, the embankments are high and streams narrow. They don't have enough room to turn the boats around, so they back out. And, that ended these swamp expeditions and Grant does what is I think one of the most audacious moves of the war. He he talks to Porter and Porter agrees to try to run his gunboats along with transports that would carry supplies uh, past the Vicksburg batteries. And at the same time, it's really serendipitous. Um the waters in Louisiana start to recede. You can see the tops of buildings and towns that had been submerged. And Grant gets word of this. It ain't clear at all, but um, it's going to be rough to get through. these still flooded areas, but the flood waters aren't as high. That hadn't happened. Um, you know, here was sitting around, kind of like Noah, waiting for the waters to recede, and, and they do. And it's just at this point, when he's backing out of the swamps, that he's under tremendous pressure from the North. Uh, the pressure from com- in incompetence to remove him from his command, he and Sherman, and perhaps Porter. Uh, Lincoln's writing him his letters, stay out of the swamps. Uh, Lincoln's losing confidence in him. Lincoln sends a spy down from the Defense Department, Charles Dana, uh, to spy on Grant Camp. Uh, the idea that he's there... to Undertake another mission for the War Department, um, but um, this is this is the point where Vicksburg could have been lost and Grant would have receded into history as a non-emperor. Really. You know, uh, he, yes, he was the first hero of the war, but you know his star would have been eclipsed uh, quickly. But at just this moment, uh, they get through the batteries. Um, take actually minor damage. And Grant marches his army, takes an entire month, through Louisiana, and um stay of April they cross the Mississippi, and cross in the Mississippi River into the state of Mississippi. And that's the largest amphibious invasion by an American force um, in North America up till the uh, up till D Day. He marches on Vicksburg.
1: section of the book, you talk about the actual fight for Vicksburg, the siege, and then the victory. I think this part uh, just shows how many different factors played a role in the victory from mm-hmm. Johnson and his apparent unwillingness to fight, Pemberton and his inability to make decisions. What do you think yeah. was the most important factor in the victory?
0: Well, you know, General Pemberton, now, uh, you know, John Pemberton, um, you know, <clears throat> I don't think was the man to hold Vicksburg. And uh, he wasn't a great commander, and it, it wasn't like fighting, fighting, probably would D. <clears throat> but they had other good commanders, and um, uh, when he, <clears throat> he was in a tough position, um, when he went into Mississippi, when Grant went into Mississippi, because he lands in a place where he, he, there's no good maps, uh, he has to depend on slaves as, as guides. <clears throat> Excuse me, an African American slave take part in the campaign. Providing intelligence information to Grant on every aspect of, you know, the terrain, rebel supplies around the rebel army, things like that. So, Grant, you know, is actually when he lands, he's between two armies. He's got an army in Vicksburg, almost as big as his, and he's got an army, a relief army, that's forming. Out to the east, in the capital of Mississippi, which is Jackson. And don't forget. Jefferson Davis, president of the Confederacy from Mississippi, and his brother had sprawling plantations just below Vicksburg. In fact, Grant would later take over these plantations and turn them into slave uh, freedmen's communities, communities for free blacks, and then turn it into what he called. What he hoped would come and uh, use this word a Negro paradise. So the Davises, this is their state, and Davis is alarmed, and he's sending what reinforcements he has. The Confederacy has a manpower crisis, but he sends what he can, he and it goes to Johnston. And as I said, Grant respected Johnston, so he's he's between two armies, uh, and uh, he could have easily lost this thing, but he does a smart thing. He uh, doesn't. <clears throat> Go directly north and try to hit Vicksburg. He landed along the shoreline, you know, 60 miles south, 50 miles south of Vicksburg. But he takes the railroad that runs from um, Pittsburgh to Jackson, and he cuts off Pemberton's supply line. He cuts, he severs the supply line, and then he decides he's going to fight these guys in detail one at a time. And he wants to draw out Pemberton from the defenses. He doesn't want to get in a situation where he has to. They go in the whole city with it. they had good defenses on the land side as well as the water side. He doesn't want a siege situation. He got one, but he didn't want one, and um, so he wants to draw out you know him. And he decides he also has to take out Johnson because he doesn't want to pump in his rear. So, in and in, you know less than a month, he tears through Mississippi. He takes one. He takes a small town uh, called Fort Gibson. He fights a battle uh, and then he decides to go to Jackson and Johnson. He fights a small battle along the way. Then he defeats Johnson in a brief engagement at Jackson and sends him scurrying to another part of the state. Now he's got nobody in his rear for the time being. Then he turns on Pemberton and he defeats him in one of the great battles of the Civil War, at a place called Champion Hill, which is a Champion Hill is a cotton estate, a cotton plantation. Uh, uh, still owned by the Champion family, by the way. And Winston Churchill, you know, in writing about the U- U.S. history, he said that this was the most important battle of the Civil War because he, he takes he, he, he destroys the offensive capability of the um, of the Confederate army. This is Grant and And then he drives the Confederates back inside the city and expects to take the city rather easily. Um, The army, the Confederate army, is dispirited and roused way down. They've taken staggering losses at Champion Hill. Champion Hill was only a one-day fight. For Johnson to attack. And so were the people of Vicksburg waiting. And they waited in vain. Johnson never showed up. Um, he got close. He surveyed Grant's position, though it was too powerful to challenge, and rode back to his camp. And that's where he was um, in the Jackson area when Vicksburg surrenders. But I try to go inside the city and tell what it was like, the horrors of being in a besieged city, and it's being constantly bombarded. Now, you don't hear much about killing civilians in the Civil War, and um, a lot of historians say, well, this is why the Civil War wasn't a total war, like World War II. Um, I know a lot about bombing. You know, I did a book on it, an entire book on the Masters of the Air, and and a lot of that book concerns how people hold up under bombs. I was very influenced when I was writing a book by Aleppo and places like that, Syria, and, and the horrors of women and children, uh, innocent people uh, under the bombs. Uh, how, how, do they, how do they? you know? How do they hold up? The British supposedly held up very well in World War Two. I did a lot of investigation on that and found out that well, not so much. Uh, we were in an area of very intense bombing, morale, you know, plummeted, and Britain had been bombed as heavily as Germany, their uh, morale would have been down in the basement. And, uh, the, um, and using what I knew about bombing and, and working with diaries of women, and these women inside Vicksburg, a lot of them wrote compelling actually beautifully written and very evocative diaries of what it was like. And they lived, for the most part, in caves. Caves that were dug into the soft soil of the hill city. And sometimes they'd live in their house during the day. When the bombing started at night, um, they raced to the caves. And the bombs were huge. I mean, their bombing, Pittsburgh, from Ant's Army, is on the east side of the city on the west of the river taken over the river it's the Yankee River now and he's bombarding it with his gunboat and he also brings up these mortar booms uh, which you had to tow up the river and um, they're enormous and they have shells that are you know that weigh up to 100 pounds and and they have you know you shoot the pie in the sky it looks like a fireworks display with a fuse going off and then they land with tremendous impact. A lot of civilians were killed because these things took a while. You could see them and you could raise to your K. But the terror of being under that bombardment, really, they're inside a circle of fire, was um, harrowing. And um, so I deal with uh, Vicksburg, and and the city's also um, running out of provisions. One of the things Grant did is, and this is an ironic, ironic situation, the ironic situation is that longer Vicksburg held out, the worse things got for it, Because there's no, all the army, all the Confederate army is inside the city. You know, they're back in Jackson. And uh, so Grant's army is free to go anywhere they want. They raided plantations. And then turning those slaves uh, those slaves back into their camps and using them as laborers, not they're behind Union lines, in terms of the Emancipation Proclamation and earlier legislation. And Grant frees in liberating—he liberates over 100,000 slaves. You know, when this thing was all over, African Americans in the vicinity considered Grant the Great Liberator, not Lincoln. He's the man who freed him. And um, Frederick Douglass made that point. And I have in, in a little epigraph in my novel, a quote from Frederick Douglass, where he points out that Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation, but the only one, but that doesn't free any slaves in the North. It frees only slaves in the South. But how can you free them if they're controlled by Southern plantation owners? You have to go and... The Emancipation Proclamation only makes sense if Grant shows up on your front lawn and you're a slave owner. And start stealing your slaves, and uh, that's the word southerners use for stealing the slaves. Uh, Grant's talking about his liberation, which it was. And so, I get into that, and I get into um, the history of the inarticulate, if you will, uh, you know, uh, from people who don't write a lot of diaries, but less oral testimonies that I use and describe how slaves actually. Inaccurate to say that the Union freed the slaves, because so many slaves freed themselves. Just the presence of the army put them into a predicament that that a predicament that was held out a measure of hope. Because if you could escape and you could get to Grant's army, and that meant, you know, you had southern patrols, um, you had ferocious, you know, dogs. I could catch the scent of the slaves, um, is very difficult. And um, maybe you didn't know a lot about the terrain and things like that. But the gutsy decision to try to break away Grant's army. And even those slaves who didn't break away, um, they became different people. And we have this from the diaries of northerners. That's why the northern diaries are so terrific. You know, I, I, read, I did 51 archives for this thing from California to New York and I found amazing archival material. Um, again, diaries written mostly by mistresses who were left alone in many cases. Their, their men are all fighting the war, their, their, their boys and their husbands. And it's just granddad and maybe, and uh, and the mistress and an overseer, and maybe 200 slaves. How do you control those slaves? Especially when Grand in the vicinity. So a lot of slaves would approach plantation mistress, and demand, not ask for certain so-called rights, um, they're not going to answer the door anymore. Um, they're, they're not going to do the cleaning or just do the cooking. Um, you got to provide pay and or they're going to leave. And there's these negotiations that go on. I wanted to find out, and I think I did find out, and I tell the readers the story of uh, how were actually free, free. Um, not just saying, oh, the proclamation or the army did it, but how it was done, household to household. So the book becomes, you know, a social history of the Confederacy under siege, under attack, and its response, and uh, and you know, it's actually. If I can reel back just a second, when Grant first invaded Mississippi in late 1862 and had to retreat, when he retreated and even going in, his armies he lost control of his kids of the kids in the army. They were angry. It's like Vietnam. They don't want to be there. They didn't know the terrain. They didn't like the people, um, and they saw that slaves were helping the Confederates, and that released uh, men from farm work and, uh, and, and to fight, and, uh, and, and their farmers themselves and their families are in tough situations because, in many cases, that soldier is the only provider and the war is keeping him away from his children and keeping him away from supporting his family. So they're not happy, and, and they have a sour relationship with Southerners, and it turns ugly. Uh, they start entering homes, which they're not supposed to do. Pull the earrings out of the ears of Southern women. Um, pull, you know, uh, invade their bedrooms. Um, there wasn't, wasn't a lot of rape. Uh, there were rapes, but uh, it's, it's hard to document. There were undoubtedly hundreds of thousands more than are recorded. And, uh, but it, it's the intimidation and the destruction. And so, when I agree with Grant, the Confederates fought well in the war, but probably for the worst cause imaginable. But they had a point. Um, when the Yankees were in the area, it was trouble, trouble for the family, uh, possible endangerment of the wives and children. And uh, and so in their letters, they're referred to uh, by men as well as women Mississippians uh, as vandals and as visigoths. And that's how they see, because largely what happened in northern Mississippi. See, what happens here is inside a civil war is occurring what Karl Marx at the time called a social revolution. He's writing for a Brooklyn newspaper. And it really was. It's, it's It's a war. It's the first American social revolution where one class is trying to overturn a situation where they're at the bottom, the bottom rails on, not on top, but, you know, it, it you know, fights for its freedom. And, uh, the American Revolution is a political revolution for independence. Um, it's a movement to crush independence by the North, Southern secession, but it's also a movement by Grant's army and other armies eventually to, um, free an underclass. And with the help of that underclass, and so it is a social revolution, and it starts in Mississippi and I think that's this largely, as his grand role as liberators in most histories, almost all histories of Vicksburg. and that takes me to like the first question to ask when I write the book. I, I really saw that um this story had to be told uh, the story of liberation had to be worked into the story of uh, an effort to crush the Session. Yeah.
1: And at the end of the book, you mentioned that you started work on it back in 1997, and that you visited a lot of the locations that were central to Grant's campaign. So how do you, yeah. think, how do you think that that yeah. makes your book different from other books on Vicksburg?
0: Well, I don't know if it sets it off that way, uh, but um, it, 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 I think being new to the project, not having done military history, in the end, it was difficult, but I had to learn too much. But it, it gave me, I hope, a fresh perspective on things. And I could cast a, a you know a cold eye on things, and I wasn't just working off other people's books. I wanted to see it anew. And uh, well, I'll tell you an interesting story. It's a funny story. When I was down there, and, and I'm just starting out, I'm, you know, I'm thinking of doing the Vicksburg book. I'm almost sure I'm going to do it. And I ran into a an historian named Ed Bars. Now Ed's still walking the earth, and he's in his 90s, and he's a Pacific War veteran, a great guy, and a good historian. And he's to run the military park down there, actually the whole you know military park service. And um, Ed's a legend, and uh, among historians, and he's a legendary guide, known to tens of thousands of civil War things. He's a terrific guy. So I ran into Ed. I had never met him before, and we uh, spent a day, two days together. He took me for the battlefield and the second night he said to me, Miller, you know why you're going to write the best book on Vicksburg? I said, no, Ed. He said, because you don't know a damn thing about it. I said, well, that's <laughs> <laughs> true, but why is that? He said, well, we're, we're kind of, you know, in the forest and, um, and we're not seeing, uh, we're seeing the trees and you're outside and you can see the big picture. And hopefully you can bring that big angle, wide angle view to the battle. And I was felt immensely by people like Ed Bars and a guy named Warren Graybowl, who was a geographer and eventually wrote a geographical history of the who walked me through the battlefield and taught me, reinforced my understanding of the importance of terrain. Battles aren't fought on pool tables, you would say. And uh, And then he went on to write this indispensable book about, you know, role that the land and and the terrain played in Vicksburg. So I, you know, I think that, that set me off. You know, I'm a trespasser. Uh, I, (laughs) I'm not a specialist. Um, and, uh, I, I've written books in New York. I've written books in Chicago. I've written books in the coal regions of Pennsylvania where my relatives are from. I write a book based on, my interest in it. I think. Well, well, I'll be reading. I do a lot of reading, and I think. Oh, well, maybe, maybe you know we need a book on this. And, and if I can't find it, I start thinking maybe I'll write about. It. And I got a list of scores of books that I just never I'd already started and never completed. A novel about Florence and century and things like that. But anyway, um, I that's how I write. So you're. You're going on to uh, the, the territory, you're going, you're an historian, you know how this is. You're invading the territory, as it were, of specialists and who are going to suspect you right away. But luckily, um, I ran into, as I did when I wrote my book on Chicago, tremendously helpful people. And um, Gary Winchell, who was the park historian down there, opened up the archives of Vicksburg for me and allowed me to work in his office on them. Everybody was helpful, you know, I mean. People made me feel at home in Vicksburg. and still enjoy going down there. Um, and uh, Gordon Cotton helped me. You know, he's the head of the um, old courthouse museum, which is the museum on the city of Vicksburg, and a lot of great stuff on the battle. Um, so people like that could be baby uh, shelter, me meals, you know, take beer with me. And, um, it was, writing the book was, was terrific. And traveling around to these libraries was great, like making new finds. And that's primarily what the book is based on. Primary, I think, primary source material. I always say that there might be better historians. I don't know, you know, that you really are, sure. But uh, nobody's going to out research me. And, um, so I exhaustively researched that book. And I walked the, the, every battlefield that Grant fought on in the West as well as these. I wanted to create in the book what I always try to create, it's a sense of place. I want you to know where this character is and what the place looked like, how it felt like, what the weather was like. Anyway writes that so the weather, tell the readers about the weather, he says. Weather is always so important and will play a big part in, you know, in the action of the characters. And I read a lot of fiction, and I try to use the tools of a novelist. I like Shelby Foote does, and Shelby Foote was a good novelist. And uh, fiction's about narration. It has color, incident, excitement, tension, contingency. And I try to bring all of those things into my history and tell the story, not from hindsight. But hindsight can often distort. Sure, I'm writing after the fact. which makes me a phony about hindsight, but wait a minute. If you have the diaries of people who are making decisions day to day, you understand how they felt when they made the decision. Because when they made the decision, they had no idea that Grant's making a battlefield decision. When a family's trying to decide whether to get out of the way of Grant's army or not, they don't know what's going to happen the next day, just as you and I don't know what's going to happen the next minute. And you have to see it from their perspective at the point they make the decision. And uh, then you have verisimilitude. Then you have a sense of how people get into motivation and and why they did things. And you understand that they make them in, in the context of their times. You're not censorious, you know, writing from the 20th century or 21st century perspective. So I, I write narrative history, but I try to bring interpretation into it. And so. Um, you know, want the reader, I always put a thing over my desk, will the reader turn the next page? And um, it's, it's a Barbara Tuchman idea, great historian. And um, moving the story along and giving it fidelity, um, that is making it as close to how it was as you can get using the sources, which are always limited, you always have limitations. You do, try, the, And that takes a lot of work, it takes a lot of time, it took me a lot of time to write the book.
1: Well, it definitely shows in the in the heft of it, but you've definitely got a page turner here.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I, I can't write short books. So <laughs> I've written a couple, but, um, you know, my editor's always, one of my readers actually, a friend of mine, said, ah, how about a 300-page book, huh? And, uh, well, I've written a couple but. um this when we did get to a point where like I said to my editor, it was a tough editor, but we've been together since ninety-five and I love the tough editor. Um, you know, Bob wants the story as tight as possible, but he couldn't find any ways to cut the thing. Um at the very end I did cut <clears throat> I have his number posted over my desk that's 29,380 um, words. And that's in addition to the cuts that I made as I was going along.
1: Right. I mean, a lot of books are that long, so I got that material out of there. So, <laughs> you know, I don't think there's anything extraneous in it. No,
0: definitely and, not. Um, you know, so far it's not boring. Anybody that I know, of course, they're not going to tell me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um. So... <laughs> yeah.
0: Okay. It was fun. It was fun to do and now that I'm on the road promoting a book and you know, getting some recognition and a prize here and there, I mean, it's it's helping. And to um, make me see, you know, actually without inflating myself here, it made me see the importance of what I've done in, in, in taking a Civil War iconic battle and giving it, you know, a new twist. Uh
1: get to different Definitely. You're definitely placing Vicksburg at the forefront, which I think it deserves to be.
0: Um, it's not- huge. And I didn't say what I should say here. You know, um, as we end this, but I, why, why did it break the Confederacy? Well, look, it, it was a mortal blow to morale all over the Confederacy. And um, maybe we can't win in the West. The whole Mississippi becomes the Yankee River. And that's hugely important, not just to the farmers of the Midwest, but for military operations. And New Orleans opened as a port to the sea. Sure, it was liberated before, but what good did it do um, if, if you couldn't reach it from the north? Um, it split the Confederacy in half. Um, not quite in half, but it split it. And western Louisiana and uh, Arkansas and Texas, they're out of the war. And um, very difficult to communicate with the rest of the confederacy, and supplies like salt you know, smuggled in rifles from Galveston came through the blockade, and molasses, which is often used as a form of currency, uh, a lot of those supplies are diminished or, you know dried up by the union occupation of the river but. Grant captures also, for the second time in the war, an entire army. Uh, the army of Vicksburg, over 30,000 guys, takes that out of the war. Takes Mississippi out of the war. Done in Mississippi. T- takes most of Tennessee, and, and I should say western Tennessee, out of the war. Takes all the river counties in northern Louisiana out of the war. But it frees 100,000 um and more but maybe maybe the most important thing and i think i say perhaps <laughs> because um uh, a little stronger than maybe and uh, even surely what grant did in vicksburg um, was he found a way to beat the south and nobody has figured it out it wasn't going to be, by like, individual battles, um, Antietam, then a long lull, and, you know, before that, you know, and after that, Gettysburg, and, and then, of course, the Richmond Battles and you know, the Overland March and things, um, fights, and then going to winter camp, long lulls between the battles. Grant fought relentlessly at Vicksburg. And he didn't think of it as a battle just against Vicksburg. And that's where we started this tale today. It's a campaign. It's like the campaign the United States engaged in in World War II when it landed in Normandy. Not just to take Normandy and liberate Paris, but to go all the way. there as close as possible to Berlin. And all the smaller battles along the way. And there were big battles as well. Hurricane Forest, Old... They're all part of this overall campaign. And that's how Grant saw things. And just like the armies were these campaigns are coordinated and they're worked out in cooperation with Navy and Army as well. Grant wanted all armies in the country to, have, to operate in concert. And just as he worked with Port at in, in Vicksburg. So when he goes to fight Lee, he becomes commander-in-chief of all the Union armies. And all the offenses, all the assaults, all the battles them are integrated. They're all part of a bigger plan. And all the armies work in concert. And war is unrelenting. And war is also vicious. It is fought with tremendous determination. And it's fought against, in the East as well, against citizen property. because. Phil Sheridan who went into the Shenandoah Valley and Grant pulled it went in there and which is the breadbasket that fed Richmond and turned it into a waste. And uh, he did. And that's the way he fought around Vicksburg. Unfortunately, as he and Sherman agreed, um, this is this is how this is the only way. When you're fighting your people it's not until the very end, at least for the leadership um, to hold on to their independence and to hold on to their slaves. Um, Shirley put it bluntly, you have to kill them. And, uh, Grant didn't put it that way, but he did say that you, you had to destroy every Southern army and, and what these armies depended upon for survival, of food and food for the animals. And, um, uh, so it's just a war on supply as well as on people. And and that's how the Confederacy was brought down. And Grant introduced that style of fighting because he was brought back to Washington just after Vicksburg. And Sherman took it in Georgia. Sherman didn't create Sherman isn't the originator of the hard war, the total war the way it was fought in Georgia. He learned to fight under Grant. He had objections to the way Grant fought at first in Vicksburg. He thought that if you allow the troops to Rampage and pillage, you you break down discipline in the army. Sherman was a proponent of order, 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 and and rightly so. When an army's on the move and marching and invading, it has to maintain its integrity, and its order. And but um, he, you know, so he has these reservations. When Grant, for example, at one point in the campaign, sends a commander who served under Grant into the Aussie Delta and told him to destroy everything he came across, um, except not to enter the private homes of people. That was always, you know, Grant always insisted on that. It was hard to enforce them. But when he did that, Sherman was taken aback and, um, thought he was, it was cruel. Um, and so Sherman learned to fight under Grant. Grant has the best to, to eat the man of steel. Um, not so much Sherman. Yeah. Well done. So that's oh, sorry. that's, oh, that's the big outtick. I mean, from Vicksburg on the Confederacy could not defeat, uh, could not win the battle on the battlefield and by battlefield victories. They could win by not losing, uh, holding on the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong did holding on and bleeding the North, um, taking casualties, um, delivering casualties, delivering hurt, and to such a point where the home front says, enough, the cause isn't worth fighting for. But Lincoln, to the very end, held tight to that cause, and when he was under tremendous pressure to give up on abolition, and uh, let the South come back into the Union without sweat, with negotiations secret negotiations, of southern so-called so-called peace talks but in the negotiation,
1: You've taken up a lot of your time here, Donald. So, we like to close out uh, each of these interviews by asking what uh, projects you have lined up next. I think earlier you mentioned that you're working on a next book.
0: Yes. Yeah, this is going to be a book about, um, there's been a lot of books about um, James written a beautiful book about Grant and his commander in chief, excuse me, Lincoln and his commander in chief. There has been a book about. about Grant as Commander-in-Chief, just as a battlefield chief. pressure, and Grant's down there under all that pressure. He's besieging a little town called Petersburg, which is below Richmond, um, and he's besieging Richmond himself. He he can't break through. It's a longer siege, a far longer siege, almost 10 months than Vicksburg. and if he doesn't win, if he doesn't take Petersburg and Richmond and defeat Lee, if he doesn't make inroads, if Sherman is stopped, uh, if Thomas, you know, you know, can't destroy uh, Confederate armies in Tennessee, Lincoln loses the election in 1864, and if Lincoln loses the election, McClellan, his opponent, gets it. and McClellan was willing to negotiate with the South, and the Democratic Party was filled with what were called Copperheads who were willing to have the South come in and back in the slaves. So it would have been a different country. Um, Grant had secured him a battlefield uh, victories with his armies. Sherman taking Atlanta, Sheridan making inroads and in destroying the economic structure of the whole economy really of the valley. These victories, uh, Farragut and Mobile Bay, one week in the election. So a lot's at stake in this relationship. So I'm gonna get into that, that little part of the war that's turns out to be a pretty big part of it, <laughs> you yeah. so know. I've already started it been researched. research, and then the embryonic stage is that I was going to take a long break, play some golf, and all that. I did a little of that, but now I'm back, back on the treadmill. <laughs> back at it. Yeah. Well, but I that, like it.
1: Well, that sounds interesting, and we look forward to uh, reading that one eventually when you're finished.
0: Um, thank you. I appreciate it. I appreciate all your big questions.
1: Thank you. All right. Well, thank you very much for being on the show today. Uh, I really enjoyed it, and we look forward to your next book. Fantastic.